It's time for First Voices Radio with Tilkison Ghost Horse. Please stay tuned. What makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Like to say greetings and good day and welcome my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. It's good for all of us to be here. Look to the forever ones. And let's acknowledge relationship to all, the life-giving force of the sun. It's time to wake up. Today is a good day. You are listening to First Voices Radio and Teokas and Ghost are sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopus, the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill from the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as FirstVoicesIndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Well, today's edition of First Voices Radio is about story. And to bring that to us is our guest, Kevin Aberask. And we'll go right to that story, right to the interview, here on First Voices Radio. Thank you for joining us. The stories from the stage of the world original series showcasing extraordinary stories told by ordinary people from all walks of life. It's seventh season. Seven Native Americans are the spotlight in the upcoming episodes of the series. The season, which was produced in collaboration with Arizona PBS, Nebraska Public Media and Vision Maker Media series hosts, humorists and storytellers, Teresa Okoka and Wes Hazard sets the stage for the evening's theme and welcome each episode's three amateur storytellers to perform for a live audience. And to introduce that to us is our guest, Kevin Aberesk, is an award-winning journalist, film producer, and community organizer. He is a deputy managing, managing editor of Indian Country Today and was a reporter and editor for the Lincoln Journal Star for 18 years. A member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, Kevin has spent his career documenting the lives, accomplishments, and tragedies of Native American people. 
He holds a bachelor's degree in English from the University of South Dakota and a master's in journalism from University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So Kevin Abres, Kevin, thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. It's an honor to hear from you and, and what you're doing there as a community organizer. And tell us about these season seven of stories from the stages featuring Native American citizens as the the news that we're talking about says. Tell us more about your involvement and why this is important for people to hear. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I sure appreciate being here. Uh, thank you so much. My name again is Kevin Abrask. And yeah, so I got to appear on this show. Um, uh, we did the recording probably three or four months ago now. And uh, it was a really great experience. Uh, there were seven of us uh, who were chosen to kind of try out, essentially. So we all got to uh, uh, read our stories, or not read them, rather. We, we had to memorize them. That was the hard part. And it was about a five-minute or so recording. And so we got to stand up on stage in front of uh, our friends and relatives and uh, tell our story, whatever that story was. My story, uh, my story was about an activist event that I was uh, involved in back in about April and May of uh, 2021. And back in April, members of the Lincoln, Nebraska, that's where I'm from. That's where I live now in Lincoln, Nebraska. Members of the Lincoln, Nebraska community found out that there was a huge housing development that was going to be built kind of on the southwest corner of town. And this housing development was going to be built right across from uh, Wilderness Park, which is our largest park here in Lincoln. And it was also going to be built right across the street from the Fish Farm uh, Sweat Lodge. And the Fish Farm Sweat Lodge is our oldest and most heavily used sweat lodge in Lincoln. We have, oh, two sweat lodges in town and two sweat lodges just outside of town that we use here in the community. There are about 4,000 Native Americans living in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, so the fish farm is really, you know, when I came to Lincoln back in uh, 1999 uh, was where I started attending sweat lodge. And a lot of people, it's, it's sort of their first sweat lodge typically. And then they kind of go from there if they want to go to a different sweat lodge or not. But um, it was where I started going when I first came to Lincoln. And it's where I got to meet a lot of community members from Lincoln, who I call friends now and relatives even. A lot of the people who ran those sweat lodges are gone now. And uh, a lot of the people that, that we sweat with over the years are gone now. And so the place holds a lot of memories for us. You know, it's been in existence since the 1970s and probably even before. So it was actually in operation before uh, Native Americans were allowed to practice their spiritual ways legally. You know, of course, the Indian Religious Freedom Act was passed in 1978. And in 1978, Leonard Crowdog and his uh, wife and his father came to Lincoln, Nebraska to officially consecrate the sweat lodge. And from there, it was used for many years, um, primarily for uh, Native American inmates who were in the Nebraska Penitentiary, which is in Lincoln here. And of course, you know, it was always used by the community, but, you know, that's the reason that Leonard Crowdog came to uh, consecrate it because he was doing work with the prisoners uh, there at the penitentiary. So it's a very, you know, it's got a very historical um, background to it. It was consecrated by Leonard Crowdog the same year that the Indian Religious Freedom Act was passed. And um, so it just means a lot to us. And uh, this housing development is going to be almost 600 homes 
in about an 80 acre space. Uh, about uh, 2,000 cars a day is what they expect. And a, more than that in terms of how many people will be living there. Um, so it's like, you know, just dropping a small town onto the space here right across the street from our sweat lodge, from our oldest and biggest green space in town, you know, Wilderness Park. Um, and it's going to have an environmental impact on those places. The fish farm is down uh, downhill from this massive housing development. Um, and a good about half of Wilderness Park is as well. So we'll get the runoff from this, uh, this massive housing development. And uh, even during the construction of this housing development, which unfortunately has proceeded, um, even though we've, you know, really tried to stop it, the construction of this housing development has led to massive amounts of sediment uh, being dumped into uh, Salt Creek, which runs right by the fish farm and right through uh, Wilderness Park. So back in April, we decided to try to oppose this development, back in April of 2021, rather, we decided to try to oppose this development. And um, at the time, the Catholic Church uh, of Lincoln here uh, was the owner of the property. And um, they eventually sold it to uh, Manziti Construction or Manziti Developers, I guess. But at the time, the Catholic Church still owned it. We were trying to stop the Catholic Church from, uh, from selling it to Manzito. So what we decided to do is we decided to uh, set up seven teepees on the site. <laughs> and then back in April of 2021, we said in the middle of the night, uh, it was a Sunday night, you know, uh, it was a, a new moon. So there was no moon out. And uh, so we went out there in the dark and uh, set up six or rather seven teepees. Um, and, you know, we had some people in the community who knew how to do that, but only a couple people really who knew how to do it so well that they could do it in the dark, you know. And, uh, and they kind of ran things for us and guided the rest of us in terms of setting up the teepees. It probably took a good six hours or so to set up those teepees. And uh, by the time we were done, the sun was just coming up. And uh, it was a beautiful sight. I took photos. Um, you can see them on my Facebook page, actually. The, the main photo that I took that morning is uh, my cover photo for my Facebook page. And it was just a beautiful thing to see, you know, those seven teepees set up kind of in a half moon circle. And uh, yeah, that was our way of trying to oppose this massive housing development. We stayed there for 16 days and uh, we're in negotiations with police, the mayor's office, the Catholic Church. Um, the Catholic Church wanted us gone and was trying to get the police department to uh, arrest us and take us off the grounds. But they didn't want to, they didn't want to officially ask the police to do that. They just wanted to, the police to do it. So the police would tell them, you know, well, you have to file a complaint because you're the landowner. And the Catholic Church didn't want to do that <laughs> because it would look terrible, you know, for the Catholic Church to be evicting, um, you know, Native American people from this site and, and possibly, you know, tearing down teepees. And, um, and we knew that. And we knew that when we when we went onto the site, we knew that, uh, you know, we would likely be allowed to stay there for, for some time because uh, of the PR nightmare would be for the church to, uh, to try to evict us. And, you know, to be very honest, the reason we left after those 16 days was because the developer was going to be taking ownership of it and had all but promised that, you know, they would be evicting us that day. So on the very last day, on the 16th day, we decided to march one of our teepees into town. And this was about a, no, about a good six mile hike into town. And we carried one of our teepees to City Hall. And from there, we carried it over to uh, the Catholic Church's office. And uh, we set up the teepee there in front of the Catholic Church's uh, main headquarters. 
And that was the end of our occupation. It was an incredible experience. You know, uh, one of the things I, I like to tell people um, that I took away from that experience was that we all need to decolonize, you know, spending 16 days uh, like that, you know, in, in ceremony, we called it a prayer camp. The Nesquithe prayer camp was what we called the, the occupation. And every morning, you know, we prayed with the Chinupa, the medicine pipe. And, you know, we had prayer ceremonies throughout each day. And we'd smudge anybody off who came into our circle. So it was really a prayerful place. And every night we would have ceremonies as well to close the day. And to be in that space, I imagine, was probably a little bit of a taste of what people in Standing Rock felt, or perhaps even people to some extent, you know, at the Wounded Knee Siege um, in 73. So it's, an, it's just an amazing thing. Anybody who's been to Standing Rock or, of course, you know, to, to Wounded Knee Siege experiences that that sense of uh, freedom, uh, that sense of, you know, just tasting even for a moment what our ancestors must have felt, you know, living in their villages uh, centuries ago. You know, I mean, it, it, you, your spirit, you don't realize how much your spirit longs for that until you get a taste of it, you know. So so that's what I try to impart to people is uh, decolonize, you know, just, just do what you can to try to connect back to your culture, your history, uh, your land, even if you can. Uh, thank you for that, Kevin. You just told a story. You were telling a story about relationship, about some people say connection. And I'm thinking about how this flash, you realize that a few years ago, there was a flash, you know, they were flashing at, um, at shopping malls and places around the country and continent actually. So, you were flash setting up a teepee, going here and setting up and setting up. And that's the whole idea that it's spontaneous. And actually, spontaneity is, to me, a spiritual urge, a spiritual command, I suppose. But when you tell the story, that's what people are longing for. Because when he told me the story, it kind of nourished. Like, oh, yeah, how far have I, how long have I been away from South Dakota? So storytelling is nourishment and a good medicine. And that's what you told. And tell me about the the storytellers. You have three in mind, Lavelle Wells, and also somebody from a Dene storyteller, uh, Kyle Mitchell, and also Colleen Newholy, also from the area of where you are from, Rosebud. She's from Pine Ridge. And tell me how this is related to the story you just told in the future, October 23rd, November 13th. I think this is something that people in the East East Coast, Americans in general, but other Native people are longing for us to be told stories. Those original peoples who put up the sweat lodge at Inipi that long ago aren't around anymore. So how long can these stories last without events like this? Yeah, so uh, two of those storytellers, Colleen Newholy and uh, Lavelle Wells, were part of my group. But I don't know, Kyle Mitchell wasn't part of our group, so I, I don't know much about his story that he shared. The Colleen's story was really incredible. You know, she talked about uh, an experience she had in the woods uh, with Bigfoot. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a funny story. That's why I laugh. I, I, I believe in Bigfoot, so I'm not making fun of that in any way. You know, I know a lot of Native people do as well. But the way she told the story was hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> it, it was kind of scary for her, too. So, you know, she was, you know, she needed that levity, I guess, in her storytelling because, you know, it was a very, in some ways, powerful and, and in some ways terrifying even experience for her. 
So it was really great to hear that. And uh, uh, Lavelle Wells um, talked about his life growing up in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and, uh, you know, coming up on the streets of Omaha, which is unfortunately, you know, in parts of it anyway, are, are suffer from a lot of crime, a lot of poverty and that sort of thing. You know, you might even get the sense of, you know, um, really rough reservation, you know, living in certain parts of Omaha. Um, that's where he grew up. And, uh, you know, had some run-ins with the police and, um, it's about his story of redemption. You know, it's about his story of, you know, survival. And, uh, and that's what I would say all of our stories that sort of bind the thing that binds all these stories together is, is, you know, reconnecting to, to our history, to our culture, to our native identities, our spirituality. Um, you know, Colleen's story with, with Bigfoot, I think is her way of, you know, expressing this, this connection that she found to, to, uh, her people's, uh, past to, to, uh, our identities, you know, to these stories we tell each other about Bigfoot and that sort of thing. So I think that was really powerful um, that we all got to uh, tell these stories about um, reconnecting, healing even. And Lavelle's story was about healing as well. Um, And so was mine in a way, you know, it was about uh, this experience that we had and how we were trying to, in many ways, we, we, that 16 days we spent on the hill there, we went through a lot of healing during that time. And we would even have healing ceremonies there on the hill. We would have groups that would come in and uh, even had like one of our members who was actually Colleen's mother, uh, Renee uh, Sansosi. She ran uh, healing ceremonies for women there. And, uh, you know, she's Medewin and uh, learned that way from the Ojibwe. So she was running um, healing ceremonies for them, talking circles and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and it was just so powerful, you know, the women who would took, take part in those ceremonies, you know, they would, they would cry when they talked about their own histories with, you know, abuse and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, the men, it was really powerful for us as well. We didn't have the same kind of ceremonies they had because, you know, we didn't necessarily have people who could run those kind of ceremonies, but, um, but we did our own talking circles and, you know, we would always, connect throughout the day. Um, I had my guitar there, so I'd play music all the time. And we had other musicians who'd come in. We'd had, we had a drum group that came and joined us one day. And uh, so a bunch of us joined them, joined them in singing. And so it was just an incredible, incredible experience. Yeah, I like that, that story you just told. I mean, I, I thought about the 4,000 residents there in Lincoln, is it? And how many of Native Americans, quote, Americans across the United States are not located on reservations anymore. It seems that's the majority of us. And it's important to relay, convey, and keep these stories true, true to the sense of, as you described, there was this, the land was was uh, the native people before America showed up, before the churches showed up, before the governments, and even the, the legalities that we're trying to work within. It seems that th- those legalities won't work with what you're explaining as a story of the people and really to me keeping that nourishment as i called it called it earlier is when is it possible for those peoples that we are protesting or still fighting for indian american indian religious freedom in a sense we don't really have that true accessibility to land and therefore there's there's not the fulfillment of that Religious Freedom Act of 1978. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that uh, land is so important to our ceremonies. You know, I um, 
one of the things that we've started to do here in Lincoln um, is we've started welcoming back some of the original inhabitants of this land uh, that we call home. Um, one of the tribes that we've identified was the last tribe to own land here in Lincoln and Lancaster County was uh, the Oda Missouri tribe. Um, and they live down in Oklahoma now. But uh, originally, you know, they came from Wisconsin and then they were moved west and uh, ended up in, in their last chosen home, they call it, was uh, Lincoln and Lancaster County and, and kind of surrounding areas around here. So there's a group of us in our community that has started um, welcoming them back every year on September 21st. Um, that's the day of their last uh, treaty that they signed with the, with the government when they handed over the last of their lands at the point of a gun, mind you, you know, like most tribes. Every September 21st, we welcome a group of them back. Last year, there were about 50 that came back. This year, it was more like about 23, uh, maybe 25 or so. And we try to reconnect them to the land, you know. We have all kinds of ceremonies for them. We have incredible celebrations for them. And we even invite uh, local officials. The mayor reads a proclamation every day on every September 21st and uh, uh, proclaiming that day, Oto Missouri Day here in Lincoln. You know, but one of the things that we're really missing and that we're seeking is land back for the Missourias. You know, that that's a term that really scares a lot of people, especially non-natives. You know, they, they think that we're talking about all the land. You know, they think that, you know, we want everything back. Of course, we'd love that. But <laughs> let's, let's be honest. But, you know, we, we realize that's not going to happen. You know, we realize that it's just not feasible anymore. So we're seeking some kind of land back for the Missourias because that's one of the things they've really expressed wanting and needing is is a place where they can do ceremonies or a place where they can um, perhaps even camp when they come back on September 21st and so we're looking around and we're actually you know we've got a few leads and we're pursuing those leads um, and we're hopeful you know we're very hopeful that uh, and it might take a while you know these kinds of things they take a long time um, and it's about relationship building a lot of times you know identifying somebody who you know, has some real interest in, in this this sort of relationship and then fostering that relationship, you know, connecting them to the Oto Missouri people so they really understand who it is that this land would be going toward. You know, I'm producing a film actually right now called The Land Returns, and uh, this is going to be hopefully a PBS production as well, a f um, an hour-long film, and it's about the return of land to tribes. And uh, focuses on a number of tribes, um, the Southern Arapaho, Northern Arapaho, and the Northern and Southern Cheyenne and Boulder. And there's a discussion there about land back to those tribes going on in Boulder. And we also document the return of land to the um, Wiat Nation in uh, Northern California by the city of Eureka, California. And then we also document um, an individual return of land by a guy named Roger Welsh here in Nebraska, who gave 60 acres to the Pawnee um, and the thing we find in every one of these cases is that these land returns took 10 to 20 years. And it took, you know, it's planting the seeds is all we're really doing right now. It's really letting our community know that we're looking for this thing. Hopefully trying to identify people who are interested in doing this and then building that relationship. Those things take a lot of time. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that question about land acknowledgement, land back. And you seem to have answered it. Thanks for bringing that up. And what I'm thinking also is, um, you know, the language recognition for that land. I was, I'm, I live in the East Coast here, 
and the Lenape, some of them are returning from Oklahoma to the original land, some from Canada. And when I think about what they're doing is many people have forgot their language. They're actually planting, replanting the three sisters to help them remember. And when you describe the Oto, Missouri, and the people returning there, that's the familiarity with the land, as you say, relationship. But also the language needs to come along with it. I do know that in Lakota, we can't take the same ideas of what we have about the Black Hills and apply them to this land of Lenape because the environment is different. The climate, the, the, the plants, the animals are different. And I found, found that out as, oh, this is how must maybe the non-natives feel, the settlers feel, because they're not familiar with what you're doing as far as coming back to the land and just even bringing up things like land acknowledgement before they speak uh, at form formalities or informal places. But it often feels very disingenuous. It's part of what they should be doing, but they don't carry it as far as returning land back to Native people. I absolutely agreed. Um, it's performative a lot of time, most of the time, um, uh, nearly all the time. It's, uh, it's oftentimes a way for people to make themselves feel better. You know, it's, it's easy to say these things, but to really think about what they mean. That's one of the things that, that um, I try to do. And I know a lot of people who've helped me in this effort to welcome back the Oto Missouri is, are trying to do um, is to educate people that, you know, they should all know, you know who the people are that originally lived in the lands they now call home. And that's a question that we all should have the answer to readily, you know. If somebody asks you who are the original inhabitants of the place you now call home, we should all know that. Because it is a first step. It really is. Um, land acknowledgement, to me, is a way to sort of open the door to this idea that there were people here before us. And and hopefully it starts to plant the seed of, of inquiry about you know who were those people and where are they now? And... Uh, is there any way for us to connect to them again, to connect them back to this land? I think that's sort of hopefully the, the progression that we see with these land acknowledgements that, that we're seeing across the country. Um, but they need to be taken to that level. You know, if it, if it stops at the land acknowledgement, it means nothing. Um, it doesn't have any purpose. Um, it's just it's just words. Um, but if we can take it to the next logical step, that's where it has meaning. So, so I'm hopeful. I'm hope, hoping that that'll happen more and more across this country. And you're listening to Kevin Aberesk right here on First Voices Radio. We'll return to you in a minute or so. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse.
Hey, and welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. We're interviewing, and we're going to finish out the interview with Kevin Aberesk, an award-winning journalist, film producer, and community organizer, a reporter, and an editor for the Lincoln Journal Star for 18 years. He's a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, or Rosebud Lakota Tribe, in South Dakota. He spent his career documenting the lives, accomplishments, and tragedies of Native American people. And we were talking about land acknowledgement. In this second half, we'll continue to talk about that for a few more minutes. Again, I'd like to really tremendously thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Tilkson Ghost Source. Here we go. We'll finish out that interview with Kevin. Well, I do have experience with the land acknowledgement as far as um, in Australia, the Aborigines. They, they tried this, the state tried this 20, 30 years ago to acknowledge the Aborigines first, but it seemed like nothing really came of it. 
So I think that's a, a little flag to understand. But also, if you really go past the history, even we as Native people, displaced as we are, we have to acknowledge that too, because we did this land acknowledgement with each other long before it's a trendy thing today, thousands of years of it. And maybe that history has to be there too. Like, oh, we, we approach each other in a different way. There's no borders, but there's a morphing of land using us, or, or rather we using land to pick certain medicines, food, but not taking everything to where they leave something behind for the next peoples to come along, the next native peoples to come along. And I think that's hard to understand for even us colonized native peoples, as well as those who are really the colonizers. Your thoughts? Um, no, I absolutely think that uh, there's so much work to do in this country in terms of healing and reconciliation with, with native people. And uh, I know there are efforts underway uh, within Congress to, to maybe start the same kind of conversation that happened in Canada and Australia about, uh, you know, really trying to, to heal from this past, but first acknowledge it, you know, first document um, what happened. And I think Deb Holland's efforts, you know, to really try to um, inventory what happened with, with boarding schools, you know, and first trying to identify, you know, where the boarding schools were, but then, you know, what happened to those boarding schools? How many children died at those boarding schools? You know, uh, talk to survivors or descendants of survivors, you know, about what they experienced. Um, some of these healing sessions and hearings that she's having across the country, I think are a way to, to start to um, come to terms with what happened. But, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a long road, you know, if we get there. Obviously, um, it hasn't happened yet, and there's a reason for that. You know, a lot of people in this country, you know, they don't want to look at the past. It's, it's too hard for them to look at it. You know, that's one of the things that, that I'm finding, though, here in our community with welcoming back the Oto Missouri is, is that the non-natives who come to our celebrations, who come to take part in these welcome home ceremonies, they're realizing something and they're realizing that, that they themselves were scarred by this past, that, you know, they, they carry guilt, you know, that was passed down to them by, by their fathers, grandfathers, on and on, um, grandmothers, and they carry this guilt. And, and this is a way to try to heal from that guilt is trying to reconnect to the original inhabitants of their homelands or where they call home, I guess now. So we're talking with Kevin Abresk, who's directing these uh, the Sacred Circle on November 13th. Um, also, the On Sacred Ground, October 23rd, features these three Lincoln, Nebraska residents, one yourself and the rest, uh, Colleen Newholy and I think Lavelle Wells, is that correct? And Yeah, Lavelle's from Omaha. Yeah. Omaha, yeah. And these are stories that we just heard about our, our struggles and that struggle is seems to be a short conversation, but also it's I still see and I still feel in the East Coast, they want our culture, but they don't want our struggle. And to hear these struggles is hard for them because it it brings up the feelings or emotions of guilt and like their hands are tied and they can't do anything about it. What what do you suggest for people? We went through this interview and we had several pointers about what people can do. First of all, listening to the stories. But what can we do after that? Once they really settled in and their children, generation or two away, are really growing up with the knowledge that we we have with our experience in their society or their culture. 
and and then we are on a even playing ground where you're sitting at the table, so to speak. But that table, that table is their table, you see. And I think the table is Mother Earth, as we know it, uh, Makaina. And I'm only looking for something that we can tell them, uh, them being those who haven't heard these stories before, what they can do. Like I said, just really understand who the original inhabitants of their the place they now call home are, I think is so important. Um, and sometimes that's hard to do, but, you know, there are actually websites now where you can find that information. Even deeper than that, I think, is just recognizing that that everyone in this country comes from tribal people, you know, <laughs> that um, even if your your ancestors were German, you know, at one point, the Germ Germanic people were, were tribal as well, you know, um, same with the English, you know, so on and so forth. At some point, we were all tribal people. And a lot of times, I think it's it takes connecting to that to that, that experience to really realize that we have to have respect for the people of America, the original inhabitants of this land, the indigenous people. So I, that's one thing I always try to tell people too, is learn your own roots, your, even if it's European or Russian or, or whatever, you know, and connect to that. I actually have a friend right now who just this week is, he's coming home today actually, but last week he spent the whole week in Germany and, uh, it was funny. He heard about this ceremony going on. You know, his family's all German. Germ, uh, is it Germanic? I'm not sure, but German. Sorry, his family's all German. And uh, and so he heard about this ceremony they do every three years, where you know the men will will cover themselves in moss, and uh, and they'll run around. I could be getting this totally wrong, but they would run around the woods naked or half naked, and uh, and it's this really incredible, you know, sort of tribal ceremony that you know had gone on for centuries before um that they do and so he went and took part in this you know and, I, and it was so healing for him you know to to be able to do that uh, to be able to re reconnect to his roots and so it's uh yeah it's just really great that, that he was able to do that and i hope more people can do that sort of thing thank you very much kevin apresk for during this whole event that's coming up and the events that will Season seven, what does that mean? I missed six seasons here? What does that mean? <laughs> uh, it, yeah, I didn't realize how long this has been going on either. But yeah, check out some of the past seasons. There's really incredible um, stories that people have told over the years. Okay, and we can do that on looking for, for things like on social media, YouTube, worldchannel.org is important and others that I will you know specify after this interview. But thank you very much. An honor to have you here, a fellow Lakota member, and thank you again for your time and energy. And I know you're busy. And but again, thanks for to our producer Liz Hill for for this interview too for setting us up. Grateful. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And so, as promised, here's the details to listen to all three of the presentations. Some. Dates have passed, and undoubtedly, these dates will always stay in evergreen. And the first one in the series was Stories from the Stage, about the world original series showcasing extraordinary stories told by ordinary people from all walks of life. And the other episode is On Sacred Ground, and the third will be Sacred Circle. But to really look into more would be and find new episodes even next year. Audiences can view stories from the stage on World YouTube, worldchannel.org, and the PBS app. 
also viewed on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and on the World YouTube channel. Again, the stories from the stage. First one would be on sacred ground, the sacred circle, all connected. All three of those you can find, including worldchannel.org. Again, this is Teokas and Ghost Stories. Hey, thank you for joining us here. Intelligence and all of this stuff happens through our intelligence. And just to have an example of how how much of a relationship we have to power through our intelligence. Let's go into our own individual personal realities, the ones that nobody gets to see in. You know, and let's look at okay, how much 
of this pollution, how much, how much of my life is affected by my fears and my doubts and my paranoias and my insecurities, the things I hide from everybody but I can't hide from me even though I try? How much of my reality is affected by that? And then how much does that affect the realities of the people that I'm closest to? This is power. This is the power of our intelligence. And I define intelligence as our imagination, our creativity, our thoughts, and our actions upon these things. See, so however, whatever the, the answer is, however the negativity, the toxic, is working within our reality, whatever kind of power it has in the way our lives unfold, well, that's how we're using our imagination, our creativity, and our thoughts. Because we have been programmed and conditioned to use that, to use our intelligence in that manner. And mining takes place like, it's like sleight of mind. <laughs> We're told, the more money we make, the more powerful we become. But that's not true. <laughs> right? The more money we make, the more access to authority we have. But it has absolutely nothing to do with power, really. It's about authority. And in actuality, in the actual actuality, authority represents an absence of power. That's why it is needed. But we're told, or whoever has the biggest army, that makes them powerful. But it doesn't. It gives them violent access to authority. But as we go through our lives trying to seek our own personal self-empowerment and all of these kinds of terminologies and these things that we're looking for, we're not going to synchronize it if we call authority power, if we don't understand the certain reality, see, because we don't want authority. We don't want all of the money. We don't want all of the guns. See, so these are not things that we really want to have. But if we look at that as being power, then we do not see ourselves clearly as power. Because what I'm starting to get an understanding of, we live in a reality they don't want us to see clearly. They do not want us to see clearly. They do not want us to act coherently. And who is they, just for lack of a better way, I'm just going to say, it's that industrial ruling class that is basically colonizing this planet. All right? And operating and creating a class of ethnic rich. Because when they talk about ethnics, you know, the smallest number are the rich. <laughs> they are the minority in a majority system. The minority is the richest. Okay? <laughs> so our relationship to power is connected to our relationship to the earth and the use of our intelligence. Because any clear, coherent thinking society we would not live the way that we live today if this was a coherent, free-thinking, clear-thinking society. And I know that, and we all know that. We live this way because we have to accept certain things. See, but the biggest obstacle to me in getting after what we need to get after is in how clearly we see ourselves. Because again, to respect this about our intelligence and how about showing respect to our creator, see, then we need to be real to ourselves. We should be able to face the reality of who we are no matter what it is we do in this reality. If there's any respect of the self, we owe it to ourself. 
If there's any respect, see, because, because all these things manifest. See, if it's weak at the heart, then it's going to be weak as you go out and as it goes out into the world. So we have to respect the self enough to be real to who we are. And it will help the synchronization of things in general in the long run. It truly will help. See, but if we have to hide from ourselves, then everything we do is going to be altered by that little alteration, our reality. The realities we seek or dream or chase, they're going to be altered because of that, that, that way. Because we're, we're not concentrating and using the power of who we are, but we're altering it. See, so we should always be real to ourselves. We should always do this. Even if our truths are shameful or glorious, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying judge it. I'm saying face it. If it makes us uncomfortable and we can live with it, then fine. We are, we're uncomfortable and we live with it. If it's something we can't handle, then fine. We can't handle it. And it all evolves through the behavior pattern. It evolves through our life. But we need to be real to ourselves. That is a part of our spiritual responsibility that never, ever goes away. It's coming back, all the way back to the ancestral beginning, the collective genetic memory. See, that was a part of our responsibility, was to be real while we were here. And we have that ability. It's just that we have been mind-manipulated in such a way. See, that that being part of human truly is being changed into a form of energy. See, and so it's got to do with how we think and how we use our intelligence. You know, because there are no solutions to any of the problems in front of us now, all right? There are only ways of dealing with them. But any solution, see, if we clear our individual and our collective intelligence and coherency and clarity, if we would set forth to clear, to make our intelligence clear and our perceptual reality a little bit more coherent, we set in that direction individually, collectively, then answers will come. What you just heard was John Trudell from the JT DNA series, and the segment was called Intelligence. And right before that was Kenny Vile, a single from 2018 called Loading Zones. My name is Tio Kazengoso, so I want to thank you for joining us here on First Forces Radio.
your songs and sing for your daughters. Sing for your pops and sing for your mamas. Sing for your breakfast, pray for your supper. Hello.
My name is Tio Kuzangoso, so I want to thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio, on your radio station. Tuxa Ake Wachiang Telo.